poet Frederick Knowles wrote a poet titled Grief and Joy. It captures the New Testament's account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It reads like this. Joy is a partnership. Grief weeps alone. Many guests had Cana. Gethsemane had one. Think of something that you've had to face alone. Some challenge you faced alone. What comes to mind? Some in here perhaps have had to face war situations where you were pinned down. Perhaps you've, ever, you've had to parent alone. Perhaps you've had to face an intense ongoing illness alone. There are many shared, quote, alone experiences in this room as I've gotten to know you. Sometimes I'm able to connect members on what they've suffered alone so they might encourage each other. But do you know the most unique experience? The Bible reveals that Jesus is unique in so many ways, and in one particular way was the agony he faced as the substitute for sinners. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. Page 903 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. I set out ambitiously to preach 14, chapter 14, verses 32 through 52, and the sermon continued to grow, so I broke it down into one point today. I'll finish the next two next week, Lord willing. So this is part one this week. Mark's gospel is straightforward. He wants you to understand that Jesus is the unique Son of God, Son of Man, come to fulfill what all of us and Israel and Adam never did in perfect righteousness, and then offer himself in love as the payment for our sins, for any who would turn to him for salvation. In the storyline, Jesus has authenticated his, his identity and his miracles, teaching and authority. He is the center of God's people, as the Old Testament said he would be, not a building in Jerusalem. He is the place where forgiveness of sins is granted. His righteousness and authority threaten, as we've seen in the chapters so far, the religious elites, elites of his day who were really pretenders. They really didn't want God. They didn't want his Messiah they wanted their position of politics and power. And so they are now scheming to get him in a sneaky way to avoid riots, and so they employ Judas, and that's where we left off last week. And so now we're reading about how Jesus retires after the Last Supper to a place on the Mount of Olives identified as Gethsemane, a word that means oil press. He separates Peter, James, and John from the rest of the group to go with him as he prays. Peter has just boasted, remember, that he would stand firm with Jesus through his trials, even if they lead to death. James and John promised that they could be baptized in his baptism and could drink his cup in chapter 10. Well, Jesus gives them a chance here in chapter 14 to see if they can back up those words. Before we get further into those things, let's look at what happens here in John, excuse me, Mark 14, verses 32 through 36. 
Hear now God's holy word. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here, stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. This is God's word. You know, Mark's account of Gethsemane is the darkest of the four Gospels because of how he shows the, the psychological horror our Lord faced in his humanity. And Jesus is no stoic here. His humanity is on display. His lament is on display and his trust in God. The path for Jesus to plunder Satan's territory, free people from their bondage to sin, is the path of the cross. In Gethsemane, Jesus meets this, the dreadful silence of heaven. There's no reassuring voice from heaven proclaiming, This is my son whom I love. No dove descends. No ministering angels come to serve him. God has already spoken and his son is to obey. The disciples' panic flight in this context will contrast with the quiet dignity of Jesus who has kept watch and is ready through prayer. He will become increasingly alone as we keep reading in Mark's gospel and must face the horror of his death without any human support. And consider the fear of this young man. Jesus was a young man. Seized and stripped and escapes into the darkness, compares, uh, you know, it's just, in, it's, it's amazing here. He's, the oppression that he's under. And it makes you observe that followers of Jesus, as you read this context, who do not pray, who do not keep watch as Jesus tells them to do, and try to follow their own power, well, they will collapse. If Jesus had to stop and pray, how much more do we need to, friends? Here's the central point for you this morning. It will be for there for next week as well. Collapse awaits all disciples. Collapse awaits all disciples who do not go to God for help. Who do not go to God for help in prayer. Collapse awaits all disciples who do not go to God for help in prayer. Let us, therefore, marvel at our Lord's faithfulness. Let us marvel at our Lord's faithfulness. May God cause us to grow in our prayer life as we look at Jesus this morning. Let us marvel at our Lord's faithfulness. Point number one. This is the only point I'm going to preach this morning. I'll pick up two and three, Lord willing, next Sunday. Point number one. 
Jesus knew the most intense grief. Jesus knew the most intense grief. Verses 32 through 36 is where I'm going to be focusing this morning. Again, just keep the text in front of you. Jesus knew the most intense grief. Notice the setting here. You can't help but see the the irony of the location. Gethsemane means oil press. It is here we see our Lord pressed down in distress before his arrest. It was night in a garden that was foreboding with its gnarled olive trees and narrow paths barely lit by the moon. The mood was bleak in the place of crushing. Jesus endures a great attack in the, in the mind and soul right here. And if you haven't known dark nights of spiritual battle, Christian friends, you will. Sometimes believers face very difficult oppression, depression, and anxiety. Now, we don't face what Jesus faced, thankfully. However, we do learn a lot from him here. And do not let the dark setting you walk through stop you from looking forward toward God. You know, adversity brings out the worst in us while requiring the most of us. Adversity brings out the worst in us in many ways while requiring the most of us. The only way we can ready ourselves is to bear up under pressure, and bear up under pressure is through fervent prayer. Maybe today someone needs to be encouraged to stop lingering in the dark, to stop lingering in isolation, and start praying and gathering with your brothers and sisters around you in prayer. You know, church members can get get in real bad spots if they don't pay attention to this. Store it away, brothers and sisters. You know, elders, if I could speak to you, you have a target on you spiritually. Uniquely. Rally together for prayer, my brothers. Notice the emphasis here on distress, trouble, and grief. You see that mentioned in the text. Mark uses two rare words to describe Jesus' emotions. Deeply distressed only occurs here in Mark and has the nuance of greatly alarmed. The word for troubled expresses extreme anxiety, incredible pressure. So the phrase here, fell to the ground there in verse 35, you see that, uses the imperfect tense, was falling, suggests that Jesus walked a short distance and fell, walked a little further and fell again. Could hardly keep on his feet. You ever been there? Could hardly stand? You were so overwhelmed? For an hour, Jesus walked and fell in anguish, pleading for relief from his mission. What's the deal? What was it? He was facing something beyond physical torment, beloved, even beyond physical death. Something so much worse that these were like flea bites in comparison he was smothered by a mere whiff of what we, he would uh, go through on the cross. It's at this very heart of Jesus' prayer here. He says, take this cup from me. You know, we've looked at that cup before. Isaiah 51 speaks of the cup that, you may, that made you stagger, the goblet of my wrath. Jesus would be facing not only death on a cross, but also the wrath of God for sinners. Here you may say, I don't like the idea of the wrath of God. 
I want a God of love. And one particular pastor helped me think through this in a book this, I was reading this week. He mentioned here about the problem with that saying is that if you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God. Think about it. Loving people can get angry not in spite of their love, but because of their love. In fact, the more closely and deeply, deeply you love people in your life, the angrier you can get. There's some mama bears in this room. I can promise you. Again, this particular pastor was just talking here about the wrath of God. I want to give him credit because it just helped me tremendously. Folks, have you ever noticed how that, these two go together, love and righteous anger? When you see people who are harmed or abused, you, you get mad if you love them. Your senses of love and justice are activated together, not in opposition to each other. If you see people destroying themselves or destroying other people and you, and you don't get mad, it's because you don't care. The Bible tells us that God loves everything that he has made. That's one of the reasons he gets angry at what's going on in his creation. He's angry at anything, righteously so, or any, anyone that is destroying the people and the world that he loves. His capacity for love is so much greater than ours, beloved, and the cumulative extent of evil in this world is so vast that the, world, the word wrath doesn't really do justice of how God rightly feels when he looks at the world. So it makes no sense to say, I don't want a wrathful God, I want a loving God. That's, that's, a, that's a foolish saying. If God is loving and good, he must be angry at evil, angry enough to do something about it. And if you don't believe in a God of wrath, you have no idea of your value. Let me explain. A God without wrath has no need to go to the cross and suffer incredible agony and die in order to save you. Picture a little God who pays no, nothing in order to love you. Pays absolutely nothing to love you. And picture on the right the God of the Bible who, because he's righteously angry at evil must go to the cross, absorb the debt, pay the ransom, suffer immense torment to free his people from their just punishment for sin. How do you know how much the free love God loves you or how valuable you are to him? Well, his love is just a concept. You, you don't know at all that God pays... the. the the gods of this world pay no price, in, or the ones that people make up in their mind, pay no price in order to love. But friends, how valuable are you to God, the God of the Bible? That he gave his one and only son. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I read this week about this correspondence between C.S. Lewis and a man named Malcolm. It's been collected in a book called Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. In one letter, Malcolm said that he was uncomfortable with the idea that God gets angry. He found it more helpful to think of God's power and justice like an electrical wire. He said the live wire doesn't feel angry with us, but if we blunder against it, we get a shock. Lewis replied... My dear Malcolm, what do you suppose you have gained by substituting the image of a live wire for 
for that of angered majesty. You have shut up, you have shut us all up in despair, for the angry can forgive, but electricity can't. Turn God's wrath into mere enlightened disapproval, and you turn his love into mere humanitarianism. Consuming fire and the perfect beauty both vanish. Friends, we have instead a judicious and conscientious magistrate, Lewis said, comes of being high-minded. <laughs> he says, liberalizing and civilizing analogies can only lead us astray. Your conception of God's love and your value in his sight will only be as big as your understanding of his wrath, end quote. I'll read that again. Your conception of God's love and your value in his sight will only be as big as your understanding of his wrath. Go back to the text. Jesus is, sees this cup of wrath ahead of him that he will drink on behalf of his people. In Gethsemane, he sees before him God's wrath. And Jesus, in his human nature, began to experience spiritual cosmic uh, disintegration. He, that would happen here when he in human nature became separated and his human nature becomes separated from his father on the cross. He began to experience merely a foretaste of that and he staggered. He was falling. He was in anguish already. Jesus knows the hour is very near for him to go through so much. J.C. Ryle noted he was taking up our infirmities and carrying our sorrows according to the covenant he made on earth to fulfill. He who had no sin was being made sin for us. His holy nature felt acutely the hideous burden laid on him. These were the reasons for his extraordinary sorrow. The waiting of Jesus here in this section is not that of cowardice, friends. It's the manner of waiting in which the prisoner in the dock or the prisoner's wife or mother waits for the jury to announce their verdict. I don't know about you guys, but I don't like to wait. I've never met anybody that really enjoyed it. I, you know what? I enjoy waiting. Waiting, though, when you're expecting something difficult becomes more intense. It would be the most intense and poignant of all human experiences. Experiences which, above all others, strips us of affection and, and can make us self-deceived and, re and reveals to us the reality of our needs, our values, and ourselves. You ever had been a great time of waiting and you vocalize things that later on, once things calm down, you're like, I wish I hadn't expressed that. That's where my mind was at that time. What are we to do? Well, look at the, notice the right impulse here. Jesus says, sit here while I pray. And you can tell what this means in context. The implication is that they would be well advised to do the same, especially with Jesus reminding them that the shepherd must be struck and the people scattered, still fresh in their minds. Unfortunately, it, it's like the, it just went right by them. They should stop protesting their resolutions and start praying. 
can't tell you how many times, both in my life and in pastoring people, hey, have you, have you been spending time in prayer on this? Have you been spending time with the Lord in prayer over this difficult situation? Are you aware of your need for deep communion in prayer, beloved? You see that we need to gather as a church for prayer. We have a lot of needs. You ever just notice the emails in a week that go out for a little church like ours? And they're not small, hey, pray for my toenail. That's not what we're sending out. There's significant needs. Sometimes the needs are overwhelming. Our, our spiritual battles are greater than most members see. At any point, there are marriages in serious condition. At any point, members with past addiction re issues relapse. At any point, a member is getting closer to sexual immorality. At any point, a member of the church could be close to confessing that they have ex expected other members to be good stewards financially while they only pretend to give. I mean, it's just, it's all kinds of things. At any point, a member could be drifting towards losing it on their coworkers in wrath and anger, losing it on their children, losing it on their spouses. At any point, a member is, is drifting further into bitterness, and they don't realize that we see it in their passive aggressiveness. Or at any point, a, a member begins to drift further and further about what it means to just do the simple things that Christians do. Friends, spiritual battles happen every week. They happen in the pastor's lives. We have to go do battle. We have to repent. We need prayer. Spiritual battles in the life of the church happen all the time. Let's not pretend it doesn't. And if you don't know, you should know. We're always in need of prayer. Those whose lives are pretty, quote, drama-free right now, give it time. And if you're not careful, you keep on neglecting good things, it won't be long. You'll be in spiritual danger. It happens every time. Whenever that drift and neglect, it's just a matter of time before I get that call. Or I'm picking up the call to say what's going on. Prayer is well advised for the disciples You'll see this emphasized in chapter 14 right here in the garden multiple times where Jesus is next week. We'll look at him coming back. Wake up. Pray. Spiritual warfare is nonstop. J.C. Ryle notes, we shall never find a better prescription than this for bearing affliction patiently. The first person to whom we should turn in our trouble is God. The first complaint we should make should be in the form of a prayer. The reply may not be given immediately. The relief we want may not be granted at once. The thing that tries us may never be removed and taken away. But the mere act of pouring out our hearts before the throne of grace will do us good. The advice of James is wise and weighty. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. James 5.13 but notice the humanity of Jesus here. We see Peter, James, and John. They, they witnessed, remember, transfiguration? They, they, they witnessed the divine identity. Now they will bear witness to his humanity. He's deeply distressed. 
You know, those who have trouble seeing Jesus as human should make a serious study of this passage. When you think about what we've studied in 1 John on Wednesday nights, those who denied Christ's humanity clearly were avoiding, avoiding this text and this record. We tend to highlight, though, the divinity of Jesus while downplaying his humanity. We are... You know, how are we to understand the union of a human nature with a divine nature? The Bible says that in the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity took on himself a human nature. However, when he took flesh and a human nature, he did not deify the human nature. That human nature remained human. His two natures are perfectly united in such a way that they are not confused or mixed or divided, or separated. We cannot mix them together, deifying the flesh or humanizing the spirit. This is the great, one of the great mysteries, right, of the Bible. Jesus is truly God and truly man. And at the same time, we must never separate them. They are always and, and everywhere, they are always and everywhere united. In the incarnation, the Son did not surrender any of his attributes. The divine nature is still eternal, infinite, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. It manifests all the attributes that belong to deity. God did not stop being God when, he, when the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh and human nature. The human nature, though, retained its own attributes, being finite, contained, unable to be more than one place at the same time, limited in knowledge and limited in power. Just doing a little bit more careful teaching here. A little more theology, if we, if we can do it this morning. It is, it is a gospel preaching church. We should do sound doctrine. The late R.C. Sproul rightly observed here. You can hear this. If you ever heard him teach, you can hear him saying this. I sometimes get upset with some of our hymns that speak of God dying on the cross. The God-man died on the cross, but the divine nature did not die. If God actually had died on the cross, not only would Jesus have died, the Father would have died, and the Spirit would have died, and the whole universe would have ceased to exist because the universe depends for its moment-to-moment -moment continuation on the upholding hand of God. If God perishes, everything perishes. No, the God-man died in his human nature. Even when he was a corpse in the tomb, he remained united to the divine nature. His human spirit was given to the Father in his last breath. The union of the divine and human was not broken. So we do not separate the two natures, but we must distinguish them to avoid falling into heresy. Hebrews stresses that had he not thus experienced human pressures, weaknesses, temptation, pain, he would not be qualified to help us as we go through these things. End quote. That's why we confess that article this morning on the back of the bulletin. We uphold this great mystery, the Incarnation. You see his humanity here. It's amazing. As it is, his human experience is such a guarantee that in every moment of demand and pressure in our relationship and walk with God, we may go to him confident that in some sense he has been there before us. So it is the helper. He's the helper that we need. He identified with our weaknesses, friends. When we're praying, you need to know something. He knows about your pain. 
He knows about what it means to be tired. You don't know how tired I am. Yes, he does. God knows. Jesus, your Savior, knows. You don't know the anxiety. You may not, Pastor Garrett may not know it, but Jesus knows what it means to be weighed down, overwhelmed, sweating drops of blood. This is our Jesus. But notice the honesty and trust in Jesus' hour of prayer. You look there and as he's praying, he's on such intimate terms with God that he, he did not shy away from loudly laying bare his thoughts like a hurting child crying to a loving parent. Abba, Father. His prayer shows that we can express our feelings honestly to God. Parents, your, your children ever been, have they ever, uh, when they, especially when they're little, shrunk back from expressing their hurts to you? No. And Jesus shows us how to go honestly to God in prayer like weak, little, dependent children. Have you grown... <coughs> Now, we should be growing in maturity, but in our prayer life, we should all approach him like his little children. We are poor and needy, helpless. And the Bible reveals in Romans 8, verse 15, that believers, those indwelt with the Holy Spirit, can pray like this. Only believers can pray like this. If you're not a Christian, you can't approach his throne in prayer. You have to be in Christ. Romans 8, 15, for you do not receive, Christian, a, a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You don't need to shrink back in prayer, beloved. There's no reason to be timid. Go to the Lord in prayer. Spirit enables God's adopted sons and daughters to pray to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit in deepest sorrows just as the incarnate Son prayed here. We certainly can understand in His humanity the desire to avoid the suffering that was coming His way. And He prays honestly here asking God to Consider a change. And asking God to change our circumstances is not insubordination, friends, but actually exudes trust that God listens to prayer, grants requests that can be reconciled with his overall providence. The principle for us in prayer, prayer life is not, oh Lord, I might as well not ask because you're not going to, you're just going to be tough on me. I've been there. How about you? you ever been cynical? Come on. I know I'm not the only one who can be tempted towards cynicism. My generation is marked by sarcasm. Certainly am tempted towards this. Why bother, Lord? You're just going to be tough on me. No, no. Jesus teaches us here to expect power. To expect power while accepting suffering. We should expect power while accepting suffering. 
Jesus overcomes the silence, fights off human temptation to do as he wills, and through prayer acquiesces to God's will, not my will. Some of you have read the old uh, Puritan paperback, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. There's an updated uh, take on that by Andy Davis. Uh, Highly commend both of those books to you. But here we see the rare jewel of Christian contentment in Jesus' prayer. Expecting power while accepting suffering. Christian contentment is a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. To quote Burroughs. I'll say that again. Christian contentment is a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. You ever met a a Christian so filled with the spirit they're like this and they're suffering? You ever known a Christian like that? You marvel at the peace they have. Like, did you, I, I heard your doctor's report. I heard what was handed down to you in that situation. How are you doing so well? They've been spending time with God. That's what they've been doing. That's the only way we get that. That's the only way we have this kind of peace with God. Is by spending time with Him. Getting power from the Holy Spirit as promised. We see as a Godward focus perfectly lived in Jesus for our own contentment. Let's say, maybe you're here and you're disgruntled. Now, let's, let's not pretend we're always content, friends. I'm, I'm sure that no one here is 24-7, 365, content. All right? Let's put that aside. Just, but there's instruction here for how to get better at Christian contentment. We must become more and more God-centered. Focused on the plans and the glory of the Father. Jesus is giving us the clinic. He's giving us the notes. How to grow in Christian contentment, especially in the midst of deep, dark times. So centered and focused on the glory of the Father. Much of our discontentment comes from our selfishness in pursuing our own agendas, seeking our own glory, feeding our own lusts. We were created to be God-centered servants of his will moment by moment. I'd like to admit to you that every moment I'm always this way. I'm not. And neither of you. We get better at it through prayer, through seeking him. Jesus will not evade the cup either by slipping away in the dark or by resorting to violence. He will accept the nails of the cross as he accepted the stones of the desert. What seems to be, friends, what we learn through these things often as we go through anxieties and difficulties and sufferings is we often seem to see to be our we often seem to be our, our deepest desires are really just our loudest desires. And you know how, especially when you are in intense pain or great temptation, you, you just can't think straight. You ever you ever just been through great 
anxiety and worry and concern and struggle and, and difficulty, and you just cannot think clear. You will, you will even turn on the people who love you. That's why that saying goes, we hurt the ones we love. You can make a, a shockingly self-destructive decisions in the midst of anxiety and worry. Oh, there's some decisions I've made in impulse. How about you? I wish you could, I could just get that one back. Of course, that's vain regret. But nevertheless, you learn from it. We'll say and do things we know that are not, are not only hurtful, but actually undermine the people and, and values we love the most in those times if we're not centered on the Lord. At one of the most supreme moments of personal pains in the history of the world, Jesus doesn't do any of those things that you and I would do. He says, not what I will, but what you will. He's not saying to God, I think you're wrong, but I'm going to let you win this one. That's not what Jesus is saying. No, he's saying, I trust you no matter what I'm feeling right now. I trust you no matter what I'm feeling right now. I know that your desires are ultimately my desires. Do what we both know must be done is what Jesus is saying to the Father. He doesn't deny his emotions. He doesn't avoid the suffering. He obeys for the love of the Father and for the love of us, beloved. These verses are so instructing, aren't they? They're so instructing to our prayer life and to our walk. What a clinic Jesus just puts on just a few, few words of prayer. Have you, have you had a Gethsemane-like challenge, brothers and sisters? Some of you, I know you've shared them with me, where you've been in great anguish. For many of us, there will be more than one you know, Gethsemane-like situation where we're under great duress. A time when we are tempted to avoid doing what we should because we know that doing right will cost us dearly and hurt us deeply. Such times may well be accompanied by fear and confusion and by friends who seem distracted and unavailable. Let me ask you, let me ask just, for example, have you ever had a relationship so torn a relationship so stressful you felt as if your heart was going to stop beating. Did Jesus not express here he felt as if he was going to die? How about a personal struggle so difficult? A personal struggle to you that's been so difficult like addiction, depression, resentment, maybe narcissism or other problems that could be even related to a brain issue. So difficult. How about ongoing spiritual battles like besetting sins or, or, you know, just can't get free of being captive to money and possessions and power and position? Have you come, ever come into that place of darkness where you really didn't know what the future has, had, has for you? Have you come to that place when you say to God, though, your will be done? Have you gone to him in prayer? And surrendered. Gethsemane teaches us through Jesus that dark struggles 
are God's invitation to set aside what you love today in exchange for unseen, unimaginable grace. I want to say that again. Gethsemane teaches us through Jesus, through Jesus that dark struggles are God's invitation to set aside what we love today in exchange for what's unseen and for unimaginable grace. He teaches us, instead of perpetually denying your desires or changing your circumstances, you'll be able to trust the Father in your suffering. You'll be able to trust that because Jesus took the cup, your deepest desires and your actual circumstances are going to keep converging till they unite forever on the day of the eternal feast. God is working out things that we can't see. Friends, is this a part of your regular prayer life? Not my will, but your will, Lord. Jesus faced, he faced Gethsemane alone. Look at, the, keep reading. You'll see what the disciples do. Jesus would go to Calvary alone for his people. So it makes us ask this. Ultimately, if you don't hear anything I said today, think about this. Will you die in your sins and stand before God alone? Or will you stand before God with Christ as your Savior? Jesus put on full humanity, body and soul, to fulfill all righteousness, to live the life we all should have lived, and die on the cross for our sins, for any who would turn from their sins and trust in him alone. He was raised for our justification. Prove that God accepted payment for our sins. And he's coming again to judge the world. If you don't know Christ, I'm pleading with you, turn from your sins today. Come to Christ. Put your trust in this Savior. There's no one like him. Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, indeed, with you all things are possible. And there are many things we would boldly ask you to take away from us. After looking at our Savior again, we were reminded to say, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Because in Jesus, we are given eternal life. In Jesus, we are Lord, our pleasures forevermore. Increase our trust and our faith today. Help our unbelief when we are weighed down. Spirit, help us to trust you more and more. So that our disposition is at, is at peace and our souls are at rest in the midst of this suffering world. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the cup of wrath for us so that we could have the cup of fellowship. We praise you in your name. Amen.